all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about eisenhowercenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. Contact us if you'd like to be a sponsor on Veterans Radio, and let's move on to our program. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Tony Brooks, an Army Ranger and uh, now a uh, doctor of chiropractic medicine. But we're here to talk about his uh, new book, Leave No Man Behind, the untold story of the Rangers' unrelenting search for Marcus Luttrell, the Navy SEAL lone survivor in Afghanistan. Tony, welcome to Veterans Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's it's a. I had the opportunity to read the book, and it's a, a real good um, book to give maybe people information that they're not getting about uh, what it's to be, what it's like to be an Army Ranger, what you have to go through, and then uh, this mission in Afghanistan. You served though from uh, 2003 to 2007 in the in the Army. But why did a nice kid like you join the army? Wasn't exactly the path that I thought was going to happen. <laughs> I was away at college and my first few weeks in college was the 9/11 terrorist attacks and that forever changed my path in life. Um I knew at that moment, you know, I was watching TV I needed to go serve greater than I was serving right now, uh, mostly out of anger that uh, we had just been attacked. My weapon of choice, so to speak, was to become a uh, U.S. Army Ranger. And that's not, that wasn't something that uh, you came to because you had this big military family. I mean, you, you, if I read it right, you're kind of from an upper middle class, you know, playing golf with dad at the club kind of guy going on to university. So how did this hey, I want to be an Army Ranger. How did that get received by uh, your family and friends? And, and kind of what was the what was the seed for that? You know, I wish I knew the actual answer to that question. I, I don't. Um, it was a passion, passion and love for country, I think, that really pushed me 
to join the military. I've always loved my country. I've always loved, you know, the United States. And and what I did was after 9-11, I kind of wanted to do the typical young adult thing and act on emotions. And my parents, you know, they weren't against it. Um, they just wanted me to really think it through to make sure that that was the decision that I wanted to make. My father told me, you know, why don't you give it a year, finish your first year of school and then, and then jump in because the war is not going anywhere. And boy, was he right. Yeah, 20 years later, here absolutely, we are. Absolutely. You weren't uh, the prototypical army ranger guy. You know, you weren't uh, this huge muscle-bound jock. Talk to us a little bit about that, you know, where you were in that stage of your life and why you thought this was the way to go. You know, I, I'm a very analytical guy. And um, when I came to my decision to become a ranger, it was after lots of research, too. So. I, you know, I researched what it takes to become an army ranger, you know, what they do, who typically does. And, and that's a kind of a stereotype, the big muscle bound guy, the stereotype of the army ranger isn't really true. I mean, yes, there are a few guys in there that are just huge muscle bound guys, but most of them are thinner than you would expect because they're more endurance type athletes. I knew that that was more my style and that's, that's when it drove me to, to seek out that path. Well, and you describe in the book, Leave No Man Behind, the untold story, Army Ranger training. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I think that that part of the book's really helpful for family members who maybe, you know, their, their loved one didn't give them a peek inside what's really going on in the training. It's difficult. Why don't you talk a little bit about that difficulty? Yeah. So when I went through, um, it's different than it is now, but it's still along the same lines. The goal of a lot of that training is to break you down, really see who wants to be there. Who's not going to quit. Who's got the willpower to, to see the end game. So they do everything in their power to just, you know, physically and mentally break you down to see who's, you know, it's kind of a simulation of war, right? Who is going to rise to the top when the bullets start flying? And that's what the training is designed to do. And, you know, I tried to depict it as best as possible, but it was very grueling. But in my head, I wasn't going to quit. They were never going to break me, in my head, at least. <laughs> well, and they tried as, as well they should, because when you get out of here, you got to live by the slogan of Rangers lead the way, don't you? Absolutely. And um, you complete uh, ranger training. Um, as I say, it's a difficult. Not not everybody who starts comes out the other end. And you you ultimately did service in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Afghanistan in two thousand and five, and Iraq in 06 and 07. But the the book primarily focuses on um, two thousand and five and the rescue efforts for. Uh, the helicopter known as Turbine 33 during Operation Red Wings 2. Set this up for us. Tell us a little bit, bit about how this comes about and and uh, your your role in this process. Yeah, so in Ranger Battalions, uh, the 75th Ranger Regiment, they deployed at a very high operational tempo. Every six months, approximately, they were deploying during the Global War on Terror, each battalion just rotating in and out of country. Um, 
And so I knew I was going to deploy soon after arriving to 2nd Ranger Battalion at Fort Lewis. And our next deployment happened to be, you know, the spring of spring and summer of 2005. So I had six months of training to get to get there and get ready. We knew we were going to Afghanistan and the war had changed at that time. So I got to Afghanistan and it wasn't, you know, the heavy fighting that had happened prior and after, actually. But at this moment, it was more of a win the hearts and minds type of war. And Rangers, at least my platoon and my company at the time, weren't very um, active uh, on this deployment. In fact, it might have been the slowest deployment ever for for my company. And, you know, we trained a lot on that deployment. My very first mission was Operation Red Wings. So we were training, 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 and then we get word that, we lost a Chinook helicopter and you guys are going to recover it. So that's kind of how it started. I want to, I want to back up to, I want to back up to something you mentioned it about training, training, training. And again, I think this is one of the things the civilian soldier divide doesn't really understand. Um, There's so much training that has to go on, but training is a hazardous business, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, I actually, when I was in second ranger battalion, I lost more guys in training than I did in combat. So it's, yeah, it's definitely scary business. And I just don't know that our civilian counterparts fully appreciate both the the extent of training and and, and the, the, the hazards associated with training. And for family members, you know, they're worried about those overseas deployments, but they <laughs> equally have to be concerned about uh, training and training accidents. And, and they happen in all kinds of ways, including some freaky ways, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Parachute accidents. I mean, I ran off of a, a loading dock and was knocked unconscious. I mean, live fire accidents. There's plenty of different ways that people can get hurt, um, you know, lose their lives as well. I just think, we, you know, it's important to remind folks of thinking about and, and keeping good thoughts about our troops, even even when they're stateside, even when they're involved just in quote-unquote training. But but let's come back to, to Afghanistan in 2005 in the summer and, and this uh, mission, uh, the your first mission, actually, I think, um, to search and rescue for the downed helicopter. Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, what was going on. Yeah, so what we what we had heard, and you got to remember that anytime there's a search and rescue mis- mission, the intel for it is very very weak. And all we knew was that a helicopter with 16 men on board had been shot down. We didn't even know that there was a Navy SEAL reconnaissance team missing at the time. We learned that um, as Intel started pouring in. But um, yeah, my very first mission. So I had no idea what to expect. Um, I had been told that we always had great Intel and, you know, everything was well planned. Well, this was a very hasty mission. You know, we've got Americans down and we need to go get them. So 
I learned on the fly, so to speak, or, or I was thrown into the belly of the beast. And as you um, and, and as the whole platoon kind of goes off on this uh, mission, um, you're on a high mountaintop uh, in the Kunar province. Um, I think you're about 9,000 feet high up in the mountain. Correct. And anybody who's like, okay, how do I put that in perspective? You know, if you've been out to, uh, say, uh, Wyoming to the Grand Tetons, I don't, I don't think they go up 9,000 feet, or they're pretty close to 9,000 feet. I mean, this is difficult terrain, difficult uh, uh, oxygen levels. Talk to us a little about about the physical experience that you that you describe in the book. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness uh, I was in the 75th Ranger Regiment because the way we train is very excessive and we push our bodies to the limits every single day um, not just when we're at war but also back at home so when we got on the mountain physically um, i don't think any of us ever thought we would experience any hardship ever um, but quickly did we realize that was not the truth um, when you're out on that mountain um, carrying the amount of weight that we were carrying. I think each guy had a minimum of 50 pounds on them uh, up in this terrain. We had no maps and we were using satellite imagery to navigate this terrain. And if you've ever seen satellite imagery, it's a straight view from the top. You cannot see terrain. So everything was a surprise once we got onto the ground. But yeah, every breath you could feel, every step you you took was um, much more difficult than you experienced down at uh, sea level. Well, I think that's part of the book that's particularly uh, enlightening to those of us who were, aren't there to, you really paint the picture of, you know, following these goat herder trails down a rocky mountain where you don't know where you're going and, and, and the footwork is... I mean, you talk about sliding down hills, I mean, you know, down down part of this mountain. Um, and that wasn't an accident. It, it was an accident, but it wasn't an, uh, an occasional occurrence. This was happening to everybody, wasn't it? Yeah, I, there was one part that I write about in there where we were climbing up a very rocky hillside. And yeah, I'm surprised we didn't actually cause an avalanche, <laughs> to be honest, because, you know, we had a whole bunch of guys going up this mountainside. Every single guy is knocking rocks down, sliding. You know, they take a few steps and they slide down three steps. And they take two steps forward and three steps backwards. Um, and everyone's falling and dinging their knees and elbows. And um, it, it was terrain that had we have seen maps, we probably would have avoided. But, you know, he did the battle. We didn't have maps of that area because it was so... Um, remote that you know we we did what we could and we struggled yeah and and part of that too anybody who's been at elevation if you've been in colorado or the rockies or you know wherever you understand the impact of dehydration and you guys are out there for longer than you anticipated trying to find uh the downed uh, uh helicopter the chinook um, and dehydration and water becomes a problem uh, for the rangers as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were told uh, at the onset of the mission that this is 12 hours in and out, 12 hour mission. So we packed accordingly. And, you know, a week later, we were still out there. So. And we're not going to make any, we're not going to make any fun of army planning at this this point. But uh, yeah, somebody, somebody misshot that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there was no, I mean, you couldn't plan for this because um, there were no maps. Um, we were going to save another, you know, another service, actually. They were uh, under a different command. And if you know anything about the military, uh, Navy, Army, Air Force, we don't necessarily talk well with each other. We kind of stick to our own terrain, so to speak. Well, we were going out to, to rescue Navy personnel and army personnel. So, I mean, any combat search and rescue mission is not going to have a lot of planning. It's very hasty and it's very fast. And and, and ultimately, you we learned did, really hard. Uh, yeah, ultimately, you did find the Chinook and the most difficult part of the book and the most honest and maybe raw part of the book is identifying the 16 men who were uh, lost and the obligation to bring them and put them into body bags and move them to transport tell us a little bit about how that affected you then and how it affects you today i mean that's something that will never leave you um at the time it was you know i was so mission oriented i was trained very well and in the moment it is just get the job done. Just get our guys home. That's all we cared about. These were Americans, and it didn't matter what it took. We were going to get them back. Um, so there wasn't a lot of room for emotions at the time. It wasn't until slightly after that all of us kind of realized what just happened. Um, but yeah, to this day, I you know I think about that mountain. I think about it probably daily. Um, and mostly in a healthy way and a thankful way. Uh, but it wasn't always that way. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things you have to work through and you have to be able to separate wartime from your everyday life. And that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, thankfully, you know, I've, I've been through lots of training, lots of schooling. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician, so I know how to deal with it. And that isn't necessarily true with, you know, a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform. Yeah. And uh, I th- the emotions I th- never end and they, and they should be, you should recognize that it's okay to cry and it's okay to, to be upset. It's okay to have those emotions where on that mountain, we weren't, we didn't have time to do that. Well, and on that mountain, you have to do things that, you know, no normal human being ever has to but for army rangers on a recovery mission, you know, it's you've, you've got to look for booby traps. You have to worry about if everybody isn't booby trapped. And, and then you have to collect belongings of these uh, dead uh, servicemen and and get them into the right body bags. Um, and unfortunately, there, you know, uh, you write how some men were look like where they were just laying there undisturbed and others obviously were much more uh their bodies were much more impacted by the crash and the and the uh probably rpg that 
brought them down. That's all stuff it takes years to process, doesn't it, uh, Tony Brooks? Absolutely. Many, many years. I mean, that's why the book's coming out now and not 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, I, I've struggled even to this day. I struggle with writing about it because, you know, I, I genuinely love those guys that passed away on that mountain and I care about their families. And I know that when they read this, it's going to be hard for them. But sometimes, you know, first of all, I think history uh, must be told and these hard realities need to be the civilian world needs to see needs to hear this because we tend to glorify war um, all over the place, video games, movies, and it's not glorious. It really isn't um, a necessary evil. Yes, I do believe that. But. Uh, we need to, we also need to know what we're really getting into when we do go to war. And this part of the book on on the um, recovery of the men um, from Turbine Thirty Three sort of bumps into maybe the most famous Navy SEAL recovery effort, uh, Lone Survivor, with Marcus Luttrell, which has had all kinds of uh, um, publicity. But it's that part of of the recovery of Tribune 33 that I think is the most, maybe the most important part of your book, because it gives us a look and an insight into something maybe we didn't know about and the challenges there. But walk us through almost the accidental um, looking for and ultimately recovering um, uh, rescue, I should say, of uh, Marcus Luttrell. Yeah, so like I was saying, it was a very hasty mission, and we really didn't know everything that was going on on the ground when we actually arrived. Uh, we knew the helicopter was down, and that was our primary goal. Well, as as the mission developed, uh, we were informed of the four-man Navy SEAL reconnaissance team that was also missing. And we thought that we might uh, see them at the crash site, but they weren't there. Uh, at that point, we moved forward to try and find them. And again, no intel. We had some. We knew their, the path that they were supposed to take. So we definitely searched every single nook and cranny of that mountain. And it took us days to really locate and find and narrow down the areas that he could have run to. And I'll just say this. Marcus Luttrell... I have no clue how he survived that ambush. His his team was ambushed in a in terrain that no human could have fought out of. So I don't know how he actually got out of there. I mean, the movie probably depicts it pretty well based on what I've heard from him. But uh, pretty unbelievable how it took us days to find him on that mountain. And we knew his potential path that he had taken. So this shows you how rugged that terrain really is. Well, and I think it also highlighted for me in reading uh, your book, Leave No Man Behind, the untold story of the Rangers' unrelenting search for Marcus Luttrell, the Navy SEAL lone survivor in Afghanistan by Tony Brooks. It, it highlighted for me just how difficult this was, that not only the train was, but then working with the locals He's ultimately found in a village, and you have a line in there about 
you know, if we didn't find him when we did, who's to say the village elders wouldn't have just traded him away to the Taliban? And, and man, that just hit me when you sort of pointed out that all that you guys were doing and pushing for was really the, you know, sort of the first man to get there. If there was a survivor, you had to get him and bring him back before, if you will, the Taliban would have found him. That, that, was, that was a powerful section that you wrote. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the amount of, and in the movie, I think they, they do kind of point this out, that you know, the Taliban wasn't going to just walk away. They knew he was there, and they wanted him. So, you know, the decision could have been made at any moment for them to say, no, we're going to get him now and we're going to take you guys out. So we knew that. We knew that every single second mattered. So we were moving at speeds that even even in training, when we're trying to push our bodies to the limit, we would never uh, safely move at the speeds we were moving at. We were moving at reckless speeds and we all knew it, but we were okay with it because the alternative was the Taliban getting our guy. So yeah, I, I do think that that moment, every single moment out there mattered. Um, you did two tours in Iraq and we're not going to have time to talk about those. And uh, you were participating in the battle of Ramadi. Maybe there's another book in there somewhere. Um, I want what, where I want to end this is uh, kind of a more positive, upbeat thing because there's a little bit of love story in your book about uh, the the woman you ultimately married, and uh, you're going on to school to re- receive your medical doctor uh, license in two, I think it was 2014. Some kids come along. Th- thing, things got, you know, you got out in 07, got married in 2010, but you know, you've had a pretty good decade there, haven't you? Yeah, it's amazing how things change. Um, yeah, I, I was trying desperately to get a date with my wife. Uh, and I write about this in the book, how basically I, I failed at that for many years. <laughs> but um, ultimately, yes, I did get married. We have two wonderful children. Um, ironically, I learned that my wife was pregnant on the anniversary of Operation Red Wings, the first with our first child. And, you know, life does come full circle. You just have to, you have to let it happen. Yeah, you gotta, um, st- you gotta stay in the game. You struggled with some PTSD, but, but worked your way through that, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, as, you, as you mentioned earlier, you've had a lot of education and training that maybe made this a little easier for you. Obviously, the support of a family makes this a little easier as well. But, you know, as, as time goes on, things get really good for you and you get a chance to reflect. And, and sometimes I think particularly guys who might be in the throes of it or, or family members who just think he'll never pull out of it need a little hope that indeed some time and some effort, uh, things do get better, don't they? Time, time and lots of effort, yes. I mean, it does take a lot of effort. It's not just going to happen. It's, it's one of those things you do have to work on. Your physical and emotional health, your diet, exercise, all that stuff matters. Well, we're talking to Dr. Tony Brooks. Uh, Tony, if uh, 
if folks want to know more about you or more about the book, uh, more about being what being an Army Ranger is about, give them a website or something you can direct them to. Yeah, they can always come to my website, which is drtonybrooks.com or drtonybrooks.com. And books are available basically anywhere books are sold. And you can reach out to me via my website. I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram, Dr. Tony Brooks. I'm on Facebook. Please reach out, uh, especially veterans. I love to uh, join you on your journey, and I want to hear your stories too. Well, we appreciate you taking some time today, uh, Tony, to uh, talk to veteran radio listeners talk about being an army ranger in this particular mission in afghanistan in 2005 and we wish you nothing but the best with the book and with the uh, uh, family and uh, just life in general well i thank you for having me and thank you for everything you're doing for veterans um i know you're you're in the battle as well so thank you and i hope everyone has a wonderful wonderful rest of their summer you got it tony thank you thank you And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, Eisenhower Center. VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. They keep us on the air, as does your support. Go to Facebook, go to veteransradio.net, and support our efforts. And until next time, you are dismissed. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.